You can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of John. We're in John's Gospel. We're coming to the conclusion in chapter 12, specifically at verses 42 to 50. And this is the conclusion of Jesus' public ministry. Now, the Gospel continues on from chapters 13 to 21, but in terms of His public ministry among men, this is it in terms of the last words of the Savior. So I want to pick up reading in verse 37 to the end of chapter 12. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and what it teaches concerning acceptance with you. We know it's not by our works. It's not by our deeds. It's not by our law keeping. For we are miserable, hell-deserving sinners. But Christ came. He took on our humanity. He lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father's law. He died as a sacrifice and as a substitute, and he was raised again that third day, so that all who look to him in faith will have everlasting life. We rejoice in that, most high God, and we pray that today would be the day of salvation for any and all who have not come to the Savior. As well, we pray that you would edify and encourage the people of God, that we would once again stand in awe at what Christ has done for us. Forgive us now for all of our sin and unrighteousness and guide us by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, remember in the context, Jesus has announced that the hour has come. And we see in John's gospel that the hour refers specifically to his death. So he lives this life of obedience to the Father. He comes to die as a sacrifice and as a substitute. And then he's raised again the third day. So in chapter 12, specifically at verse 23, he announced the arrival of the hour. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And then in verses 27 and following, he explains the significance of that hour. He gives a further explanation concerning 
incarnate, His death. And notice specifically what He says in terms of the accomplishment of His death in verses 30 to 32. This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. So basically our Lord Jesus promises victory over the threefold enemy of man. He's going to deal with this ungodly world. He's going to deal with the devil, who is the ruler of this world. And he's going to deal with the flesh, the sinfulness of man. Notice, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. In other words, effectually unto him for salvation, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now on the way, John, or rather Jesus, tells the people that they must believe. Notice what he says in verse 36. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Again, it's not by our works. It's not by our accomplishment. It's not by our good deeds, hopefully outweighing the bad deeds. But it's faith in Jesus that brings the forgiveness of sins and that brings that righteousness that avails with God Almighty. And then note what John says in verse 37. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. In other words, this does not take God by uh, surprise. This does not come as a shock to our Lord Jesus Christ that men reject him, that men resist him, that men refuse to believe on him. This was according to the prophet Isaiah. Now that brings us to the final section in verses 42 to 50. And there's two things we ought to focus on here. First, the belief of the religious rulers in verses 42 and 43. And then secondly, the concluding words of the Lord Jesus in verses 44 to 50. And the concluding words sound a lot like what we've already seen throughout our study in John's gospel. Jesus speaks concerning his nature, he speaks concerning his mission, and he speaks concerning his authority. But we'll see that in just a few moments. Notice, though, the belief of the religious rulers in verses 42 and 43. It says, nevertheless, so there's this contrast. He's already explained a theology of unbelief. The prophet Isaiah saw this. The prophet Isaiah spoke to this. And we see it fulfilled in the coming of our Lord Jesus in his first advent. But then John makes this observation in verse 42. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. Now, that's a bit of a puzzling statement when we go on to verse 43 to see what that looked like. I will argue that this is not saving faith. Context helps us to determine whether faith is saving faith or whether it's what we call temporary faith or just a historical faith. So notice in verse 42, nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. So that's the contrast with what we found in verse 37, but it's not altogether a good faith. It is not a saving faith. As I said, it's either temporary or historical. So let's look at the nature of their faith or the nature of their belief in verses 42b and 43. Again, the immediate context deals with faith. The immediate context, as well as the larger context of John's gospel, is an emphasis on faith. John summarizes in John 20, 30 and 31. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that believing in him, you may have everlasting life. 
That's the purpose behind this. So naturally, faith is a very uh, powerful topic as we consider John's gospel. So on the one hand, verse 37, so many, are, uh, uh, they had not believed in him. And now in verse 42, that there were among the rulers, many did believe in him. Notice what it goes on to say, though. It tells us something concerning this belief or this faith. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Even before we get to those three descriptions, the words following, nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. The two words, but because, give us a bit of hesitation, gives us a bit of caution, gives us a bit of trepidation as we try to untangle this particular situation. On the one hand, verse 37, they didn't believe. On the other hand, verse 42, many of the rulers did believe, but because. And then notice that he gives three descriptions as to what characterized their faith. Now, our brother Mark just read in the scripture reading from Matthew chapter 13 of something that we would call a temporary faith. He spoke of or he read of the stony place hearers in Matthew 13, 20 and 21. For a time, they make a profession. For a time, they look like they've, they're the real thing. For a time, they look like they've come to Christ, but they fall away. And then he spoke or he read of the, 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 the types of hearers that were those among the thorns in Matthew 13, 22. Again, there's that temporary faith. Sometimes people get a bit of religion in their veins. Sometimes they feel like I should go to church. Sometimes they feel like I should probably pay some attention to the scriptures. I mean, the world out there is a mess right now. There's unrest everywhere. There's chaos. There's oppression. There's persecution. There's rioting in the streets. There's all manner of lawlessness. And at times and, and at and occasions, people start to feel their own, their own mortality. And they start to ask questions. And they might come to a church for a time and express some faith faith in Jesus, but they're temporary. They fall away. They don't continue. The apostle John speaks of this in 1 John. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they were of us, they would have continued with us. That doesn't mean that every believer always has this white hot faith and is only ever persevering in a manner that is absolutely pleasing to God and in a manner that is absolutely uh, blessed to behold. No, we've got our struggles. We've got our ebbs and our flows. We've got the difficulties associated with life in a present evil age. But the true saint of God perseveres to the end. He's not temporary. He's not a fair weather fan. He's not just there on the winning team when everything is going well for him. He goes forward in the fear of God and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit to the very end, to the bitter end in terms of this life is concerned. But when he enters into that blessedness, which is in the presence of God most high. There's a historical faith, and Gill seems to indicate that this is where these men are. He has a comment concerning this commentary, or this comment by John. He says, but the many here spoken of seem to have had only an historical faith in him, as appears by what follows. So temporary faith is just that. It's an expression of belief in Jesus, but when the trials come, they fall away. What's historical faith? Historical faith is somebody who says, yeah, the Bible is the word of God. 
Yeah, Jesus is the Messiah of God. In terms of a literary explanation of various texts in the Bible, yes, historically, I observed there was a man called Jesus. He hailed from, from Galilee, and he engaged in the sorts of things that the Bible says about him. There's no saving faith. There's no grip on that by God's grace, the empty hand receiving the benefits that Christ brings to those who believe. So the historic faith might have been operative among these rulers. In other words, this is the Messiah. This is the one that the prophets wrote about. This is that Micah 5-2 man. This is that Isaiah 9-6 and 7 man. This is that Genesis 3-15 man. In some respects, this is probably even more miserable than the temporary faith. Imagine actually acknowledging the truth of God's holy word, but not looking unto the Lord Jesus Christ in faith for salvation. Imagine actually being convinced that scripture is true, that there is a God, that he sent his son into this world, that he did live, that he did die, that he was raised again. And he does this in fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, many of which were prophetic passages underscoring the nature of his work. It would be to save his people from their sins. So acknowledging that, but not laying hold of that. Acknowledging that, but not receiving that. Acknowledging that, but not looking unto the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. So whichever it was, whether temporary or historic, it's not saving faith. And we know that by the three descriptions that are giving, given in 30, uh, uh, 42b and 43. Notice first, they did not publicly confess faith in Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. Now, there's some interesting things that happen in the Bible. There's an interesting event in 1 Kings chapter 18. We typically associate our knowledge of that, that chapter with Elijah's victory on, on, on Mount Carmel. Remember, it's basically a God contest. The Baalists bring their sacrifice, and then Elijah brings his sacrifice, and the God that consumes the sacrifice by fire, that's the one that is the true and living God. Before we get to Mount Carmel, Elijah issues that, that, that challenge. He says, how long will you, will you halt between two opinions? How long will you limp along? How long will you not identify with Yahweh, the true and living God? But prior to that, there's this prophet by the name of Obadiah. He's not the kind of guy like Elijah. He doesn't challenge these 400 prophets of Baal to a God contest. He's more obscure. He works behind the scenes. He is a man that, that does fear God greatly, as the narrator tells us. But as I said, he doesn't stand on Mount Carmel and say, bring all the false prophets, let's have this God contest, and let's settle it for now. Who is it? Is it Yahweh or is it Baal? No, he works behind the scenes. He's a, he's a more obscure man. He's more subtle. In fact, he doesn't even want to alert Ahab that Elijah is present. In fact, when Elijah says, go tell Ahab I am here, uh, Obadiah's response was, have I sinned? Do you want me to die? Do you want bad things to come upon me? So when you look at scripture, not everybody is an Elijah. Not everybody stands out on Mount Carmel and lifts up his voice loudly and proclaims the glory of Jesus Christ. But this much must obtain in those who have faith in Jesus. There must be a confession to some degree or other. It may not be at Mount Carmel, but it might be over your Thanksgiving dinner table. It might not be Mount Carmel, but it might be in a chat group with your family. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in the book of Romans in chapter 10. He says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, 
you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Brethren, there's no silent disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, you may not have the, the lung capacity of an Elijah or the boldness of an Elijah or the testosterone of an Elijah, but you will confess faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. These rulers that so-called believed on him would not do so. And they did not do so, secondly, because they feared consequences associated with faith in Jesus. Look at what the text says. It says, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Now, on the one hand, the fear was legitimate. On the other hand, the fear was illegitimate. Turn back for just a moment to John chapter 9. And you'll see why this was legitimate on the one hand. Notice in John chapter 9, specifically at verse 20. This is the man who had been born blind that Jesus healed. And then the uh, uh, religious leaders try to shake down the man. They, they try to shake down his parents. And they engage in absolute lawlessness and wickedness predicated on the fact that they despise Jesus. So notice in John 9 at verse 20. His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but by what means he now sees, we do not know, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, ask him, he will speak for himself. Great answer, great response. You see, they don't want to do that because it might legitimize the whole thing and validate it. Now notice in verse 22, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had, had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. And then notice, dropping down to verse 34, they answered and said to him, this is after tangling with the man himself, the man says such wonderful things like, I don't know, go and uh, uh, ask him, and if you want to be his disciples, then, then you can believe on him also. So in verse 34, they answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins. It's a good way to dismiss your opponent, right? You're just a wretch. Why should I listen to you? You're just a, a pariah in society. Why should I listen to you? This is commonplace among the opponents of our God and of his Christ. They answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins. And are you teaching us? And they cast him out. So back to John 12, specifically at verses 42 and 43. They didn't confess Jesus lest they should be put out of the synagogue. So on one hand, it's a legitimate concern. If we confess faith in Jesus, we'll be put out of the synagogue. But on the other hand, it's an absolutely positively illegitimate concern. Why? Because all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will what? They will suffer persecution, brethren. When Elijah the prophet mounts the opposition against the prophets of Baal, how do you think it all ends? After there is that execution of the false prophets, after there is that time when Elijah's under the broom tree and he's downcast and he's hurting, he's not having some crisis of faith, rather he is lamenting the reality of Israel, the covenant people of God, they've gone a whoring from the Lord. Do you think that Ahab and Jezebel turn in their opinion of, uh, of Elijah? Oh, he's such a wonderful, splendid fellow now. Let's go and help him. The people of God in every age have always suffered from the godless. It's just that clear. It's just that way. 
This idea that I'm going to sign up for Christianity. I'm going to become a believer, but I'm only here for the benefits. I'm only here for the good stuff. I'm only here for that which, which, which serves me well and pleases me. That's not the Christianity of the Holy Scriptures. The Christianity of the Holy Scriptures is oftentimes, not always, I'm not trying to sell it as a completely negative thing, I'm not trying to sell it all, the, the, the language is just metaphorical there, but, but, but there is a, a lot of affliction and hardship and, and difficulty associated with it. So on the one hand, their fear is legitimate because they are going to be cast out of the, out of the synagogue, but on the other hand, their fear was illegitimate. And brethren, just by way of a side note observation, we got problems with this in the church today. We talked a bit about this on Wednesday night. One of my brothers in this room, I don't want to you know, out him, but he's asked for prayer. And the way that he's formulated his phrasing, I've adopted it. I've stolen it from him. I've co-opted it from him. Pray that we'll have buckets of wisdom, courage, and faith. I think that's a good prayer. Buckets is very suggestive. It's very, you know, profuse. There's an abundance of it. I don't want just a little glass. I want buckets of wisdom. I want buckets of faith. The church today wants buckets of courage. We're too afraid to publicly confess Jesus. We're too afraid to actually maintain God's word relative to the second, seventh commandment. We're too afraid to, to ever appear to be those sort of brimstone and fire preachers. We, we can catch a lot more flies with honey. No, we catch flies with the word of the living God, trusting in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit to make effectual that word, to draw sinners out of darkness into marvelous light. That's what we trust in. We're not supposed to capitulate. We're not supposed to be full of fear. We're not supposed to be, well, we can't say that in the public arena. We must say it in the public arena. We must maintain the word of the living and true God. Remember that scene where the apostle is standing before Festus and Festus says to him, much learning is driving you mad, Paul. You sound like you're, you're off the reservation. You sound like you've, you've lost it. You sound like you're, you're, you're a lunatic. What's Paul's response? Well, I don't want to come across that way. I, I want to make sure you like me. I want to make sure you accept me. He says, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but I speak the words of truth and reason. What do you think that this chaotic world desperately needs right now? A capitulating church? A relevant church? A hip church? A cool church? She needs a church that's going to effectively communicate the word of the living and true God. A church that's going to preach law and gospel. Law so that sinners will see their need for the Savior and gospel so they'll see that fountain open for sin and uncleanness. Brethren, there is in us today, within the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ, a lack of courage. We look like these rulers that are a bit too feeble and weak to ever announce or to ever confess that no, Jesus is our master, Jesus is our Lord, Jesus is our savior, his words are truth and reason, and therefore we're gonna launch our offensive and engage in our defense with reference to that word. We're not gonna compromise. We're gonna celebrate with the Apostle Paul that primary vehicle by which God extends the kingdom of Christ. Preach 
the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Notice, convince, rebuke, exhort. A feebly weak and effeminate church won't do that. I, I don't want to convict. I, I can't rebuke them. I, I can't exhort them. What, what might they think of me? They, they might get offended. They might get upset. They might frown. This is unacceptable behavior on the part of God's people in church. Now, you know, I preached it last Sunday night, that I think that the Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and in Ephesians 5.19 refers to the Psalms of David. Brethren, I think, now just indulge me a minute here, that when the pulpit preaches Jesus as a self-help guru, then the church will treat him as a self-help guru. When the church sings Jesus is my boyfriend songs, then the church is going to treat Jesus as their boyfriend. The vision of the church ought to be Revelation 19. King of kings, Lord of lords. The, the, the sword of his mouth proceeding by which he makes war. He wages war. It is through his word, his word preached, his word sung, his word propagated, his word confessed, his word celebrated, and his word, and I speak metaphorically, rammed down the throats of the God-hater. That's what the church needs to be about. We don't apologize for God. Oh, we're sorry we did this, God. No. We stand our ground on the word of God, understanding that everything else is sinking sand. These rulers, in their belief on Jesus, were too afraid of the Pharisees and too afraid of the consequences of being put out of the synagogue. Many in this room have suffered consequences for identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ. What an affront for somebody to come along and say, well, I'm a believer. I'm one that has confessed faith in Jesus. Well, it's never cost you anything. I'm not suggesting it has to cost you something in order to be saved. I am suggesting, however, that when you are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, in a world that is in opposition to Yahweh and his Christ, you're going to have some consequences. I'm not, you know, throwing down the whammy. Hopefully this is going to happen to you this afternoon. No, 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 no. If you haven't met this challenge or this opposition, stick around a while. You probably are. As I mentioned last Wednesday night, if the last three years have taught us anything, hopefully it has taught us that there might be more on the horizon. How do we face that? Well, we're sorry for what we did the first time. No, we're going to stand by, stand fast, and say with David in Psalm 122, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Brethren, we are God's blood-bought children, filled and possessed by the Spirit himself. We don't need to fear men. Paul makes this argument in Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, what can man do? Remember that scene at the Valley of Elah when Saul and all the armies of Israel were hiding behind their, their skirts? Remember that? David is sent on a mission by Jesse. Hey, take these cheeses and take this bread to your brothers out on the battlefield. So David gets out there, and what does he say? What's happening? What's happening here? Why are you guys hiding? 
Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? David is incredulous at the scene. David is just bewildered. Saul, my, my king, the, the armies of Saul, and, and what are you doing? You're, you're cowering in fear from this uncircumcised Philistine? David says, I'm ready, send me. Well, David, make sure you, 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 you tack up and, and, and all of this. Get, I don't want it. I just want my slingshot and five smooth stones because I'm going to best that giant in the Valley of Elah. And there's a twofold purpose. Not so that you and I can learn how to deal with our giants. That's not the point in 1 Samuel 17. The point is, is that Israel will know that there's a God in Israel. But as well that all the earth will know that there's a God in Israel. When this shepherd boy goes out there with his slingshot and he throws one stone and it buries itself right in the giant head of that man and he falls. And then David takes the sword and cuts that head off. This is a farther uh, application of Genesis 3.15. The enemies of God very often in the Old Covenant meet with fatal head wounds. That's typological, for, uh, pointing forward to the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. These men were cowards. They feared, or they did not publicly confess faith in Christ. They did not, or they rather feared consequences associated with faith in Jesus. Uh, one, one more text I, I, I got to point us to. Go to Daniel 3. Daniel 3. We may actually move the final words of Jesus to another Sunday here. I think this is something that needs a bit of pursuit. Daniel 3, you probably know the situation. Verses 1 to 7, Nebuchadnezzar erects this idol in the plains of Dura and calls everybody to worship. I think it's pretty obvious it's probably an image of him. Now, some disagree and some commentators say, no, that's probably not what it is. I'm of the opinion that it was him. I mean, his pride, his arrogance is obvious in later portions of the book of Daniel. But whatever it was, there's an idol on the plains of Dura. And everybody's obligation and responsibility and command is to bow to that idol. To confess it as Lord and God. To see in it your security. To see in it your safety. To see in it your divinity. And of course, the penalty, if you refuse, the penalty, if you resist is the fiery furnace. That's a consequence associated, isn't it? That's a hard consequence to be sure. So drop down to 3.8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are several, uh, certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. They're ratting them out. It's a surveillance state. Rat out the guy who doesn't comply and watch him burn. That was their whole mindset. Verse 13, then Nebuchadnezzar in rage and fury. Again, I mentioned this on, on Wednesday night. If your concept of civil government is such that they never sin, 
They never color outside the lines. They never become oppressor or persecutor. Just come to a prayer meeting, 9.30, every other Sunday morning. What's the common denominator in the persecution in the various nations of the earth? Yeah, there's religious neighbors, you know, Muslims picking on Christians. There's Hindus picking on Christians. But you know what the overarching theme is? Governments. Governments crushing their opposition. Governments crushing their people. So much for freedom of speech. So much for freedom of thought. Freedom of conscience. That is an, a, a, an arena that is for God alone. Whatever a man chooses to think, he ought to, in a civil polity, be able to think it, as long as he doesn't engage in criminal acts. God's going to police your thoughts. God's going to punish your sinful thoughts. But you don't want to hand the sword to civil government and give them the, 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 the uh, jurisdiction over your mind. Don't, don't ever get to the point where you think that's somehow okay. No, it's not okay. So when we look at these prayers or these, these requests from Voice of the Martyrs, it's, it's oftentimes government rage against people who won't comply. The beast of Revelation, there's actually two in Revelation 13. And whatever your specific bent eschatologically, however you interpret the book of Revelation, most people agree. The one is political in nature and the other is religious in nature. Again, whatever that means, however it's fleshed out, however it's exegeted. That much most of us agree on. There is a religious element, to be sure, and there is a political element, to be sure. Political element? Yes. If you don't take this mark, if you don't do what we say, if you don't comply, we're going to make life difficult. That's the situation that obtains here in Daniel 3. Nebuchadnezzar says, here's this image out on the plains of Dura. Y'all better bow down to it. These guys come to rat out Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Let's pick up the narrative. Verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar in rage and fury gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke saying to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. Going to give you one last shot, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Going to give you one last shot. You can make this right. This can all go away. You won't get singed in that burning, fiery furnace. You won't get consumed in that burning, fiery furnace. You, you, just, you just do what you're told. Just comply. Just bow. Notice what, they, what it goes on to say. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who would deliver you from my hands? Don't you love being a believer and reading passages like these? Nebuchadnezzar, you don't know what you're talking about. You certainly don't know Yahweh of Israel. You, you don't know what's in store for you, pal. You, you just don't. It's kind of fun to watch as that sideline observer on the divine narrative. Notice their response in verse 16. Did they fear certain groups of people? Did they fear the consequences associated with fidelity to the, to the God of Israel? Did, did they fear and have that trepidation and, and, and oh, what, what, what shall we ever do? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Wow. 
That's chutzpah, right? That's guts. These aren't low-T men. These are men, and by that I mean they've got faith flowing through their veins. These are men that do not care that Nebuchadnezzar is upset. He's outraged. The, the narrative has already told us that. He, he's furious. The nostrils are flaring. The incredulity involved. You, you three are going to defy me? You've got one option, and that's to make this right right now. So back to the text in verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. They do a risk analysis. They understand that their God has the sovereignty, their God has the power, their God has the capability and competence, to deliver them from this consequence of not subduing or, or kowtowing rather to Nebuchadnezzar. But it's the next bit that I think really expresses their faith. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But note the next three words, but if not. If not, even if he doesn't deliver us, from this burning, fiery furnace, we're not going to renege on our allegiance. We're not going to shift it to the image on the plains of Dura for a bit of pottage. We're going to maintain fidelity to Yahweh, trusting in his ability to free us from this consequence. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to shrink back from declaring our allegiance to him 100%. Look at the text. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. That, my brothers and sisters, is a bucket full of courage that the church and our generation desperately needs, along with wisdom and along with faith. We need to be able to confess with David through God, we will do valiantly. For it is he who will tread down our enemies, Psalm 60 and verse 12. We need to confess with Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot a vain thing against Yahweh and against his Christ? Why do they do that? It's a losing errand. It's a fool's errand. They're not going to be able to mount the opposition. Remember last when I preached from Psalm 2, I, I cited, uh, Shane put this in my possession, this, this clip from Albert N. Martin. Albert N. Martin says, you know, if, if the ants were lined up on my front porch and they had it in their minds to get me, how would I respond? I'd laugh at them. I mean, bring all the ants you can. I'm not the strongest guy in the world, but I'd like to think I can deal with ants. Lots and lots of ants, as many ants as they can gather up together. So, so that's why it says that he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. He's going to hold them in duration. Brethren, the church needs those, those buckets with wisdom, with courage, with faith. And then the last description of these men. Again, it shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't shock us. Wow, I didn't see that one coming. Notice in 42b and 43. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. 
For, this is an explanatory for, they loved the praise of man more than the praise of God. They loved the glory of men more than they loved the glory of God. Now, this isn't new. As I've mentioned, what we have here in the latter part of John 12 isn't just with reference to the immediate context, but I think it summarizes up the entirety of the book of signs. The book of signs is chapter 1, verse 19 to chapter 12. And it's the public ministry of our Lord Jesus. So from 13.1 to the end of chapter 20, you have the book of the Passion. That's the basic, simplest way to sort of divvy up the Gospel of John. You've got the prologue, 1, 1 to 18, the book of signs, 1, 19 to chapter 12, and then you've got the book of the Passion from 13, 1 to 20, and then 21 functions as an epilogue to the book. So with reference to this comment, it, again, it's not just the immediate context. It's the entirety of Jesus' public ministry. It's the entirety of his bumping into and, 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 and rubbing shoulders with these religious leaders. Remember, the ministry was three years, brethren. Three years. And in that three-year period, there were those who did believe on him. And again, there's those statements along the way that, that indicate such. But there were those that had growing opposition to him, a growing antipathy to him, a growing despising of him. And we know that's the case because a few days from this particular event, they're going to be assembled together under the ringleaders of the, 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 the Pharisees and the, the Sadducees and the religious leaders in the Sanhedrin. And they're going to provoke the crowd to such a fever pitch that they're going to cry out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. So this isn't new in John's gospel. Look back at John chapter 5. Jesus put his finger on the problem way back then. Notice in John 5, specifically at verse 41. After he heals the man in Bethesda or Bethsaida, he then engages in this dispute with the religious leaders. He starts to bring that to a conclusion in 541. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? This is fake faith in John 12, 42 and 43. They were afraid of the Pharisees. They were afraid of the consequences. And they were afraid of losing that which they valued the most. It was the praise of men. Remember when Jesus cautions his disciples about praying? He says, don't be like the hypocrite. What's the hypocrite do when he prays? He doesn't open his mouth in the prayer meeting. That's not hypocritical. It's not that he prays in his closet. That's not hypocritical. It's not that he prays with his family. That, that's not hypocritical. What's the hypocrite do? He stands on the street corner so that everybody can see him. He stands on the street corner so that everybody can say, oh, what a holy man. What a godly man. In that context there in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, he cautions them relative to prayer. He cautions them relative to fasting also. How do you think the Pharisees went around on a fast? Oh, I'm fasting. I'm so fastidiously godly. I'm so wondrously holy. Jesus says, anoint your face with oil. The, the reward doesn't come based on men saying, boy, you're a pious fellow, fasting as you are. No, the reward comes from God. 
And he, he cautions the disciples, don't pray like the hypocrite who stands out on the street corner, but also don't pray like the, the heathen who thinks that for as many words he's going to be heard by God. No, but when you pray, go, go into your closet. And the Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So this hypocrisy of, of wanting or craving the attention of men. Again, brethren, I'm not out for you know, everybody to hate us. Go out there and be as obnoxious as you possibly can. You just get in their face and you shout them down and do it with bad breath so they really, really can't stand you. That, that's not my point. But if you covet man's favor over God's favor, your faith isn't real. Now, listen to what I said. Listen to what I said. If you crave it, not if you have some remaining struggles in your soul, because we are proud. We've got some remaining struggles in our soul because we are prone to wander and prone to leave the God that we love. We've got some you know, remaining tendencies there to pride or self-righteousness, but, but it's a struggle and we're trying to kill it. That's not what I'm talking about. That, that, that's pretty much probably everybody's you know, report here. But if you crave that, I would never dare try and offend somebody because I want their praise. I want their glory. I want their love. I want their congratulations. I want their adulations. I want their favor. They're not real. These men are obviously not real. Whether it's a temporary, like those Matthew 13 hearers, or whether it's historic, like the poor wretched soul who sees the truth of God's word and yet doesn't come to him doesn't come to the Lord Jesus. And that seems to be a good spot to stop the sermon this morning with a bit of an examination. Again, the gospel is not tough. I'm going to make it as clear and as simple and as basic as I possibly can. God is a holy God. He's righteous. He's pure. The prophet says his eye is too pure to look approvingly upon any evil. That's how our God is. Remember last week when we considered that bit in Isaiah chapter 6? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord lofty and exalted in the train of his, his robe filling the temple. And I heard the angelic seraphim cry, or the cherubim crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. I've shared before with you, there's a, 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 a majority text reading in the book of Revelation. In the TR and in the, the eclectic text, you have three holies. In this majority text reading, again, majority text, the majority of manuscripts have more than three. It has nine. Holy, 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 holy. But those angels that are praising Jesus in Isaiah 6, don't just say it nine times. They don't cease. They don't stop. They don't take breaks. There's no coffee hour. Well, you know, I've got my coffee break now. I get to rest from crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth. That's what they're created for. That's their job. That's their business. Well, that God is holy, which in and of itself isn't bad news. The bad news comes when you look at us. That's when it gets a bit depressing. That's when it gets a bit you know, difficult to get one's mind wrapped around. So this God is absolutely holy, and as much as we like to think we're great, we're not. The Bible is very clear that all we like sheep have gone astray. The Apostle Paul in Romans 3 says, there is none righteous, no, not one. Why do you think he says it so definitively? Because some of us would say, yeah, there is none righteous, but, but you know, I'm pretty good. No, not one. 
You're not pretty good. In Adam, I'll die. Man's problem isn't that he's crippled. Man's problem isn't that he's handicapped. Man's problem is that he's dead in his trespasses and sins. So you're starting to see the bad news now? Holy, righteous God who cannot look approvingly upon any evil and we're nothing but evil? That's bad news. That sets the stage or the context for the good news, which is what gospel means. So God, the Father, in his infinite grace, mercy, and love, sends God the Son. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So that Word, the second person of the triune God, comes into this world, takes on our humanity, and then lives a life of obedience. No, he doesn't do this in the first place just to set an example for us. This is the way you're supposed to live. Once you get that down, then God will receive you open-armed unto himself. No, Jesus lives that life because we don't. Jesus lives that life and obeys because we can't. His life is substitutionary, just like his death. So he lives that life of obedience, and then he goes to the cross. See, we've got that problem of sin. There's only one thing that can deal with your sin. Guess what that is? It's blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Hopefully, you're starting to track. You say, well, well, that's good. Jesus does what he does, right? Yes, it's absolutely fantastic that Jesus does what he does. When he goes to the cross, he's not there because he's a sinner. He's not there because he's a revolutionary. He's not there because he's a political zealot. He's there for us men and for our salvation. He is there to, to bear in himself the penalty due to us men for our sin. He is satisfying divine justice on the cross. So he lives for us, he dies for us, and then he's raised again the third day for us. So what's the response to that? It's faith. It's belief. It's understanding that without him, you deserve God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come. It is understanding that it's Jesus alone who can rescue, who can redeem, who can shed, or, or rather uh, take that, that, that efficacious blood and shed it over you so that you're cleansed from your sin. Wasn't the best way to say that, but I think you get the point. We need that blood for forgiveness. It is by faith in him. And that's what he says that we'll see in a couple of weeks' time when we conclude this section. Notice, I want to end on this note so you can ponder it, not just in preparation for the next time, but with reference to the here and the now. As I said, he answers with his nature, his mission, his authority. Notice the mission. Verse 46. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. That's why he came. That's why Jesus does what Jesus does, so that you can be saved, so that you can be redeemed, so you receive the positive benefits that accrue based on his life, death, and resurrection. But note that benefit as well of getting to leave the darkness. God made us for himself. 
The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Dwelling or abiding in darkness is a rupture to that. There is no glorifying God in that state. So we're received by him. We're forgiven by him. We receive that righteousness from him. But as well, we're no longer dwellers in darkness. We're no longer defined by our sin. We're no longer under that wrath and curse and fury of a thrice holy God to, to hell back sinners. So if you have not believed, don't take your cue from these men. They were fakes. They were imposters. But rather, look unto the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, and you will have everlasting life. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Holy Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage of scripture that informs us concerning the, 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 the presence and the reality of fake faith. May it not be the case in this place. May you open hearts. May you cause the gospel to find its mark. And may sinners here look unto the Lord Jesus Christ with that true and lively and saving faith that you grant. And may you do this for your glory, and may you do this for the, the blessed furtherment of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ here on earth. And we ask in his wonderful name, amen. Well, you can turn in your hymn books. We'll sing a concluding doxology, hymn number 564. After that, I will read a brief portion of scripture and pray to close the meeting, but as well pray to thank God for the food, and then we can go upstairs. So 564, we'll stand as we sing together. Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you as well for the kindness of your, your hand in providing food for us. We thank you for this opportunity to stay together as the people of God to enjoy food, to enjoy fellowship, and may it be for the glory and the praise and the honor of our great God. May you bless your people all over the earth today. May you cause your gospel to run swiftly and be glorified. And may you save from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And we ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, please be seated for a brief time of meditation and then head upstairs for 
some food.